My name's Cutter Calloway, and I'm Assistant Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. Welcome to Fuller Studio. Welcome to TV and Theology, an audio series in which we construct a theology of television to help viewers more fully engage with the power and meaning of TV. This season, I talk with filmmaker and Fuller alum Avril Speaks about the Netflix Marvel series, Luke Cage. So I wrote in this book a bit about sort of this process of encoding and decoding as we're viewers trying to unpack kind of the power and meaning of of a TV show. And in Luke Cage, a lot of it is made very explicit of what kind of symbols, what kind of images, what kind of characters. And we've talked a lot about that in some of the past podcasts. But one thing that strikes me is that as a white audience and as a white person watching this show, there's a chance in which there are things built into the series itself or even just into the black experience in America that I may not see or get simply because I'm completely unaware of it. I'm just blind to it. And it would be interesting to hear from you if there are any of those elements that you would imagine, you know what, unless you have like concrete experience on the ground, it would never occur to you that this is what's taking place in Luke Cage as a way of understanding the story and and some of its complexities. So are there any of those examples where you're thinking, you know, here's something that maybe white audiences wouldn't get unless they had a black friend kind of navigating Mm -hmm. it with them? Yeah, like that's always one of those things I'm always, like I always think about or like, question when I'm watching shows like this. I'm like, do I don't really understand what's going on here? <laughs> and we talked about one of them with the barbershop, for example, mm-hmm. like the significance of the barbershop and like why this is in the beginning of the series yeah. that the barbershop gets destroyed. And, you know, I think about like the church as well and just the role of the church. Like mm-hmm. I talked about it a little bit in an earlier podcast in terms of sacred and secular. Yeah. But I mean, even in terms of like politics, like I grew up in a church where it was completely normal for the pastor to also serve on a city council, Hmm. you know, or, you know, to serve in some kind of form of government. And there was often this kind of passing back and forth between politics and the pulpit, if you will. It was, it was not uncommon for politicians to come to our church. I mean, you probably see it all throughout election season. Like you're always seeing whoever is, you know, running for president will go. They always got to go to a black church. (laughs) That has to be part of your campaign trails to go visit a black church. That's one of those things. I think that happens in in Luke Cage. There's like a... um, politician comes to speak or or no, vice versa. The preacher preacher goes at the 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 political political rally. The way I've always seen it, it's always been this sort of reciprocal thing. Like historically, if you look at the role of the preacher in the black community, like the preacher is kind of like the town crier. You Hmm. know what I mean? Hmm. Typically in slave communities, the preacher Mm -hmm. was the one who he had a little bit of education. He knew how to read Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. So he's the one that people kind of look to for information, guidance, or what have you. And I think even since then, in many Black communities, the preacher still kind of holds that role. I mean, even today, it's like, that's my pastor. You know, it's like, it's always like what the pastor says goes. So that said, even when there's been times of 
political unrest or what have you, it's been the preachers that have been speaking into that. So that that's very much part of the fabric of who we are as African-Americans. There's always going to be a preacher in there somewhere saying something or speaking into that. Like I said, it's part of the fabric of that, I think. It makes me, I mean, it's it's interesting too, because thinking from sort of a white church perspective, where Mm -hmm. we really do sort of professionalize different areas of our life and segregate them. We're master segregators <laughs> in all sorts of ways. And that's why when, you know, I think it was his first campaign run, but when Jeremiah Wright was saying stuff about the government or mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't remember all what he said, but, mm-hmm. or just America mm-hmm. and, oh, he's connected to Obama, you know. And so the challenge that people had was number one, why would a preacher be talking about politics? Mm-hmm. That was, that was number one. Yeah. And there was a lot of misunderstanding there. And then that Obama wouldn't denounce him and go to another church. It's like, well, what do you mean go to another church? That's right. my pastor, that's my right? Pastor. Like, I, that's that's just nonsensical. But from a, a white church perspective, number one, our preachers do not talk about politics. They talk about the Bible, mm-hmm. which is, we all know, the most unpolitical text of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> saying right. that sarcastically. <laughs> right. um, but then number two, if we don't like something they say, we leave. Right. We go somewhere else. Right. We're mobile. We can go do that. And so... It's a fundamental, like, different way of seeing the world where I think you're right. As you watch this show, you might start going, well, wait a minute. Why the show's sort of mixing these things up in a way that that isn't true to life? But it strikes me that, in fact, it really is Mm -hmm. that you've got politics and religion and preachers and mobsters and, you know, everybody all kind of blended together because that simply is life. It's also, again, this is where I think America and American Christians in particular need to do a lot of sort of confession and I don't even know what the word, restoration, reconciliation Mm -hmm. in terms of our racial heritage of church that black preachers and black church arose in a context of slavery. Mm -hmm. I mean, how would you ever as a preacher in a black slavery context preach in a way that doesn't address powers and structures of power? And of course, it's, you know, as you mentioned, this person is going to be both biblical interpreter, but also wise guide in all of life, but then also my best schemer politically, like mm-hmm. how to make sure we survive, yeah. right? Yeah. And if we can't acknowledge that, it's a loss for us, but then also keeps us from moving forward of saying, okay, where in the white church are, is really politics always on the table anyway, we're just not admitting it. Mm-hmm. And then two, how do we move forward as a non-segregated church mm-hmm. in ways that are healthy and not asking let's say black churches to stop being political, Mm -hmm, for example. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, What's your sense of, where where do you go to church now? Are you, are you a not, oh, see, there you go. You're a non-churcher. Well, you know what, here, and I'm going to tell you why I'm having a really difficult time right now, because it's one of those things where trying to find a church that I align with theologically, but that also I feel valued as a black person, you know, has just proven to be not the easiest thing. So it's not a thing where I don't want to go to church or I, you know, think that the church is bad. I actually have a really deep love for the church. And I do feel in a certain regard that I'm like called to the church. When you talk about like audiences and like who you're called to kind of speak to, I believe it's the church. But it's really difficult for me right now. The recent election didn't help that, you know, and it's very sad. You know, it saddens me that and I'm not saying that those churches don't exist. I just haven't found them just yet. Um, So it's kind of I mean, it's like you're talking about Harlem, uh, you know, being this place where 
you just belong. Like you are who you are and you get to be who you really are without not expecting that everyone else is going to be like you, mm-hmm. but that you'll be welcome and, yeah. and, and in that. And absent that, how are you supposed to commit? Well, my dilemma is that I've been on both sides. Yeah. And so I grew up in a black church, you know, an African Methodist Episcopal yeah. church where it was all black. Yeah. I've gone to predominantly black churches most of my life, like mm. through my 30s or what have you. And then there came a point where I just kind of said, well, you know, I'm, I'm looking for something different. And I ended up going to a predominantly white church. Mm. And just to tell you a little bit about that experience, I mean, it was very difficult for yeah. me. Like, I remember that day I drove into the parking lot. I had, you know, this is when I lived in Atlanta and, you know, this particular pastor, I had listened to all his sermons online yeah. and thought like, yeah, like I really like what he's saying. I need to go to this church. It was like a whole week. I listened to nothing but him all day. Yeah. And, you know, Sunday came and I was like, I got to go to this. Church. I got to <laughs> find out what this church is like. And I remember pulling up in the parking lot and counting eight black people. It was like a mega church yeah. in Atlanta. Yeah. And I counted eight, eight, <laughs> eight. I remember the number. <laughs> and I was like, there's eight black people. And I was like, I don't want to go here. And I yeah. remember turning around and leaving. Yeah. And it was like the Holy Spirit was like, are you kidding me? Like you listen to all these sermons. You drove all the way across town. Like it was Mm. in a different part of town than I lived in. You drove all the way over here and you're going to turn around. You're going to leave this church because of that. And so I said, "Okay, fine. I turned around and went back and I never left. It ended up being one of the most life changing, formative spaces in my life. Like I learned so much by going to that church and being a part of that experience. And so for years after that, I was going to predominantly white churches. Over time, I started feeling like I'm very aware of the fact that I'm one of the few black people in this church. And, it, and it's kind of no one ever treated me, at least not intentionally anyway, yeah. no one ever treated me badly or anything. Yeah. But I was just very aware of the fact that like when I say certain things, like I say I make a joke and no one laughs. It's because <laughs> you don't you don't know what I'm referring yeah. to. When I say certain things about black music, like mm. gospel music or something, you don't know what I'm talking about, or you think that that's just being emotional. Hmm. And I'm like, well, no, there's actually some value in that. And so eventually I started realizing, and, and, and I was part of it Which too. Which is both a cultural and a gender and a racial Absolutely. comment, right? Being too emotional. Absolutely. Yeah. And so after a while I started going, wait a second, because I kind of adopted that. Like, yeah, that's emotional. Like, yes, that's not of God. You know, we don't need to. And then there was one day and actually, again, like I think that day was when I was here at Fuller. I just kind of went, wait a second. No, there's nothing wrong with how I grew up. So now it's like I want to embrace that. I want to embrace that cultural side of my faith. But I also want to embrace this theological, these ideals that I have theologically as well. And I haven't been able to find a space where I can marry those two together. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to find that. And I think it's important for us to, as a whole, as a country now, as a church, and then especially as white people, that we at least at the very least acknowledge that difficulty, that, that that is a hard thing. And I see, you know, we don't need to talk on and on about the election, <laughs> but there's all this, you know, people that then say, oh, we see that 81% of evangelical Christians, I'm sure the AME probably, that's not the same percentage, but of evangelical Christians, which means in generally white Christians, mm-hmm. voted for Trump. It's not even that they did something else or third party, but they voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. And it's been interesting because then you have people that 
are saying, well, a vote for Trump is a vote for racism and misogyny and xenophobia, you know, so forth and so on. And then all those people are responding saying, don't call me a racist just because I voted for Trump. I was voting against Hillary, who's the epitome of evil, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm thinking, whatever, you can come up with your reasons for why you did or didn't vote for mm -hmm. anybody. But we do need to, whoever you voted for, acknowledge that when 81% of this Christian community does in fact vote for this person, for whatever reasons they really are, and let's mm -hmm. just assume none of them have any sort of bad racial intentions, it still signals to people of color something mm -hmm. that is troubling and mm -hmm. damaging and scary in mm -hmm. some senses. Mm -hmm. And this would just be me as a white person talking to other white Christians that it's important for us to at the very least say, we affirm that that, that is troubling to you, yeah. that you are encountering difficulty, that it's not easy. Yeah. I don't know when it kind of came to me and maybe it was obvious and I should have known this my whole life, but talking to a black man who um, has taught me a lot and he was recounting some experience of similar to what you, you had said of like, you walked into this space and I counted eight black people. And I was just thinking like, that's interesting. Like I wouldn't have ever thought to count how many people look like me walking into a room. And I was just reflecting on that and I go, oh, that's because I never have to. Mm -hmm. Like, and not only do I never have to, but I can choose whether or not to do that. Mm -hmm. and, and I asked him, I was like, is it the case that literally everywhere you go, the first thing you feel is the color of your skin? like entering any room. And he's like, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, mm -hmm. I don't do that. I don't mm -hmm. feel my color ever mm -hmm. unless I'm actively bringing it to conscious awareness. Mm -hmm. And the amount of just psychological stress <laughs> that yeah. I can imagine that would be, I don't think people like myself acknowledge that or are there. So all of that to say, thinking about your experience with church, church life, I then get to this next to last episode of Luke Cage and he runs into Method Man, um, <laughs> which is great, which might be lost on some, I mean, that that's even him, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And he takes his bullet-ridden hoodie, you know, they mm -hmm. change, he's like, oh, he's like super excited. Then he goes on the radio and does this rap called Bulletproof Love. Mm -hmm. And then it's this montage of all the people of Harlem wearing hoodies with bullet holes in them so that mm -hmm. the police can't actually find Luke Cage. And it's pretty fascinating because at this point, now the guy that's bulletproof is not bulletproof anymore because they've got the Judas bullet. Mm -hmm. um, and what is required to save the superhero, and this is another inversion of sort of the Christ story, is the community embracing him in some way and protecting him by donning these hoodies. And then that would be, you know, what Method Man calls bulletproof love. If you were just gonna like imagine, what would that look like for the white church to do something like that for mm -hmm. our brothers and sisters of color, what what are those maybe small, maybe big acts of like, what does it look like for me to wear the bullet ridden mm. or riddled hoodie to rally around someone and protect them because they are not in fact bulletproof? Mm. I could answer that question from a number of different perspectives because I could talk about that from a church perspective. I could talk about that from a societal perspective, yeah. but I, I feel like Fundamentally, it comes down to what we were talking about earlier in terms of protecting versus, mm -hmm. you know, embracing. And even with that example you gave about being the only black person in the room, like you have to think about that. Like these are things that we think about every day and that we have to encounter every day. When I lived in D.C., I went to a predominantly white church. It was a very small church. Yeah. I mean, it was a church plant. So I think at the time that I joined, there were like 20 members or something mm -hmm. like that. I remember my pastor saying something one day because, you know, he he wanted to see his yeah. church be 
more diverse. And so we would have these conversations. He was very open. Even that in and of itself goes a long way sure. of just being open to have these conversations and not just have conversations. I feel like we talk so much about conversations <laughs> and coming to the table and all this kind of stuff, which that's great. But like, how do we really have action behind that yeah. in big ways and in little ways. Yeah. So it's things like, I remember one time going on a church retreat mm. and this is at the time I lived in Atlanta and we went on this retreat that was like in Florida. So we were driving. If you know anything about Atlanta, there's Atlanta and then there's what's called the perimeter. So it's yeah. basically a highway that goes around Atlanta. I always used to tell people, I live in Atlanta, not Georgia. Because <laughs> once you go outside of that, you know, Atlanta yeah. is very diverse. Yeah. But once you go outside of that perimeter, you're very aware you're that you in Georgia, <laughs> you in the, you know. And I remember one time we were driving to this retreat. It was like a singles retreat or something. We were driving to Florida mm. and we were outside of the perimeter. And I was with a group of white friends at my white church. And we stopped at a gas station to use the bathroom. I did not feel safe. Hmm. And they're like, oh, yeah, just go to the bathroom, you know, and we'll we'll wait for you here. Hmm. And I think it was nighttime even. And we're like in some little backwoods part of town of Georgia. Yeah. I don't even know the name of the town. Hmm. And I was terrified. And I'm thinking to myself, you're really going to let me as the only black woman in this car. You're going to let me go hmm. in the back of this gas station. By like, I don't feel safe. Yeah. I do not feel safe here. Hmm. And it's like that that thought, it didn't even cross their mind. It didn't even dawn on them. And so like, I need white people to think about stuff yeah. like that. Like there's certain things that we just don't feel safe. Yeah. There's a lot of fear that we have right now post-election. There's a lot of yeah. people that are fearful of many things. And we need to be aware of that. You yeah. know, it's like I even myself, I've seen so many Facebook posts about like racial crimes and things that have happened. And you think to yourself, what would happen if that happened in this room where I was right now? What would you do? What would I do? Would you stand up and protect that person in some kind of way? Like, what do we do in that situation? Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that we all have to think about as Christians, yeah. but you know, definitely white Christians. And I, again, it goes back to that analogy of standing like Superman saying, yeah. I'm gonna protect you versus embracing. Yeah. What does it look like for you to embrace that? Even mm. if you don't understand, you still may not understand Black Lives Matter or what that means or why people say Black Lives Matter. But if you're really serious about reconciliation, if you're really serious about understanding, you have to at least try. You have to understand why people say why there's a hashtag. Yeah. Why does there need to be a hashtag yeah. for Black Lives Matter? Why is that a thing? Why is there has to be a reason behind that? It's not just people trying to just separate themselves all yeah. of a sudden. Why all of a sudden in 2015 or whenever that hashtag came out, <laughs> all of a sudden we just want to separate ourselves and say that we're special? That's not what that's yeah. about. That's yeah. not what that means. Mm -hmm. And for some people, I understand different people are at different levels. For some people, that means jumping on the front lines and joining a protest yeah. and doing that. Some people, it means asking someone to coffee and saying, help me understand. I had a friend that did that to me. She was just like, I don't understand why people are so up in arms. I don't understand Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Can you help me understand it? And because we were already in yeah. relationship with each other, by the end of the conversation, she said, okay, that makes some sense. And I think a lot of times, you know, we talked about, or I don't know, did we talk about this in another episode? I can't remember, but just how we tend to isolate ourselves yeah. in these bubbles. Yeah. And, you know, I don't understand, that's just them over there just complaining. 
or that's just them over there. They don't have respect for the police. That's just them over there doing that. But have you ever stopped to ask somebody what that's all about? Have you ever gone to a meeting? Have you ever gone to a Black Lives Matter meeting to see what they're even talking about? Because a lot of times people, you just see on the news what they choose to show you on the news (laughs) (laughs) about what's going on. And that actually wasn't the case in the first place. So I I hear you saying in a a number of different ways. One, and this, I think it's back to why we picked Luke Cage, because I think both you and I at one point had said, it actually is slow at times. I I think it maybe is two to three episodes too long. Mm and it may be because I watched Stranger Things just before that, and it was eight really tight <laughs> really episodes, tight, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it does drag a little bit. It's not a perfect show by any means, mm-hmm. um, but it does present an opportunity to do exactly what you're describing, and that is to listen. If maybe you don't feel comfortable going to an actual black friend and saying, mm-hmm. let's have coffee and tell me where I'm blind to myself. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's a, a first starting point. But then the next thing I'm hearing you, you say is don't so quickly or at all disregard or minimize my real legitimate fears and tensions and anxieties because mm-hmm. they are real. I'm mm-hmm. not making them up. You wouldn't say that about any other person or scenario right. or that you don't understand. And then another thing that I think maybe we can end with and go to sort of the to be continued episode. And that is for me, I know I've got to continually find ways that I can honestly confess when I fail at it. Mm -hmm. There was a recent police killing here locally. Mm -hmm. And I have a number of black students, colleagues, people that work on staff at Fuller and whatnot. And that one, because it was literally two blocks away from our campus, I mean, like this really hit home in a different way, but on top of Trayvon and, and, you know, Mm -hmm. everybody else, Freddie Gray. and, And I can't remember who it was. Someone said, hey, can I get in? It was, I don't know if it was a student or a coworker, but basically, can I get you this thing, whether it's assignment or whatnot, later, because I'm just really in turmoil about this. And my first thought was like, well, you don't even know them, mm. right? Like that mm. was my initial instinct was, really? I mean, like, I'm a gracious guy, but come on, just the due dates are due dates, right? And we all work <laughs> together and the world would fall into chaos if we didn't follow due dates. And like, I stopped, that was my first thought. And then I was, I was really shocked at myself at how calloused I was, but then also how easy it is for me, because again, it's very easy for me not, if it's not literally my uh, cousin or a brother or a family member or something like that, or someone I've met, Mm -hmm. it's very easy for me to be like, well, that's something they can deal with over there. Mm -hmm. Because it's not a lifetime of Mm -hmm. this. It's not whatever, ironically or coincidentally, always people that look just like me who are encountering that, you Mm -hmm. know, like that's not my experience. Mm -hmm. And I had to confess that to somebody. And I think that's another thing moving forward for me. I don't always know where to confess that to because what would not have been right, I don't think, is to go to that person and confess to them Mm -hmm. what I had done because that almost asks them to bear my burden again, Mm -hmm. which is just like, you know, another thing. So even that of not just listening, but not disregarding like legitimate anxieties and fears, but then finding the right places to say, I really screwed this up. And Mm -hmm. it's not always the right thing to go to the person who's experiencing the oppression and the victimization and ask Mm -hmm. them like, hey, can you be, can you be my priest for a little bit and and like hear my confession? I think it's also, you know, the other question is who are you in community with? I think how we respond to these things, it goes a long way if you are in community with these people and you start to see it in a different way and you start to think about it differently. You you empathize with it 
very differently mm. when you're in community with people. Yeah. Even as a black woman, and I shared my story about church, it's very difficult for me to be in conversation, you know, especially when we're talking about race, you know, when people are like, oh, you're white, sit over there in the corner yeah. of the room. And I get it. I understand why people say that. As yeah. a black woman who has like grown up, yeah. been black all my life, you know, I understand why people say that. And I may have said that. Yeah. I may have been one to say that. Mm. Was this, you know, 10 yeah. years ago or so. Yeah. But now because I've been in community with white people, I'm like, no, we need their voice yeah. too. Even if their voice is a question saying, mm -hmm. I think it's malarkey. Like, yeah. I, think yeah. it's, I think it's crazy, but yeah. help me understand yeah. that's still a voice that we need. Yeah. And sometimes I struggle with that. And that's mm. that's the thing that, you know, being in community, it's yeah. not always easy. Mm. Like, just because I'm in community with white people doesn't mean that I always want white people to speak. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I but I have yeah. to, I hold that intention yeah. because I'm like, your voice is valid because yeah. I'm in community with you and I recognize that your voice is valid. And at least for the context of this conversation, maybe yeah. not for all conversations, we, you know, you don't need to be the spokesperson, yeah. but in the context of this conversation, I want to hear your voice. But like I said, there are times where I'm yeah. just like, you know what? Yeah. I need you to. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to have an opinion about everything. <laughs> well, and it's, it's a fantastic point I hadn't even thought about. But part of the reason why I was even able to come to that awareness of where I was wrong mm -hmm. was because I know these people. Mm -hmm. I work with them and I'm like, oh, wait, this isn't the norm for them. And I really implicitly trust everything else they do. They're wonderful mm -hmm. people. Oh, this is something unique and different. Mm -hmm. And this their request for grace from me means something because it comes yeah. from them. And it's only because I know them, I work with them, I'm a part of their lives in that way. So that's yeah. that's actually wonderful. That is, yeah, it is not easy at all. It's is not, it? <laughs> it's not, it's not. But, uh, and, and that's part of, you know, it's like, I think everybody has to put themselves on the line. That's part yeah. of putting yourself on the line yeah. is being in community with people yeah. who are not like you, yeah. you know? And so putting yourself on the line might be being in community. It might be, like I said, it might be joining a protest, you know, in my line of work, it might be actually hiring writers of yeah. color, yeah. you know, and so, but that's putting yourself on the line. Yeah. And that is exactly what happens when you don a hoodie that's ridden with bullets and you might risk getting shot yourself Absolutely. in the process. Well, thank you for that. We will wrap up our series in our next episode and say, where do we go mm. from here? You've been listening to a production of Fuller Studio. Fuller Studio provides articles, podcasts, videos, and other resources for a deeply formed spiritual life. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit us at fuller.edu studio.